Already in our reading through 1 Samuel, we've seen Saul disobey God repeatedly, ignoring God's prophets, seeking his own glory instead of the Lord's, governing and waging war according to his own interests instead of according to God's commands. In chapter 15, we heard Samuel pronounce God's judgment upon Saul. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And in chapter 16, we've seen the spirit of the Lord depart from Saul. God gave that anointing and that spirit to David instead. And over the course of the last several chapters, we've seen Saul respond to David's rise with jealousy and fear and resolve to kill David and to hold on to his own throne at any cost, God's anointing be damned. So when we come to our text this morning, chapter 22, it's not news to us that Saul's kingship has gone horribly wrong. We know that already. But there are several new things in this passage that help us to see exactly in what way things have gone wrong. Because the problem isn't just that Saul is a bad king in some general sense. He is a bad king, but he's bad in a very special way. The problem with Saul's kingship is that it is disappointingly normal. Do you remember why the people asked God for a king in the first place in 1 Samuel chapter 8? It was because they wanted to be like all the nations, they said. Well, that was exactly the kind of king God didn't want Israel to have. And that's exactly the kind of king Saul has now become. A king like all the other nations have. Saul is king of Israel, the one nation on earth to whom God has made himself known. But he's thinking and acting like the king of any other nation, of a nation that has not known God. Our passage opens on Saul scolding his servants. Hear now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? It seems that Saul, himself a Benjaminite from the tribe of Benjamin, has recruited his government servants and his military leaders from exclusively his own tribe. He's given his kinsmen, his relatives, special favors, powerful jobs and valuable properties. And now he's reminding him, reminding them that they owe him. If the son of Jesse from the tribe of Judah were king, do you think he would let you all keep your jobs and your properties? Not a chance. He'd give all your favors to some Judahite, someone from his own tribe. You're here because of me. And if you know what's good for you, you'd better help me stay in power. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. This is politics as usual in most of the ancient world and in most of the world today, isn't it? But it's not the way things are supposed to be in Israel. The 12 tribes descended from Jacob's 12 sons are supposed to treat each other as brothers. The Lord delivered them from Egypt together. He brought them into the land of Canaan together, and he made one covenant with all of them together. Israelites are supposed to love each other, even if they don't belong to the same tribe, because they recognize each other as fellow members 
of the one people God chose for himself. But now, Saul is sowing division and mistrust between the tribes by using one of the tribes to rule the others. Saul's leadership is no longer about serving God and serving his fellow Israelites. It's about advancing and securing his own interests. And he's passing this self-interested attitude down to all of his commanders. And in turn, it will infect the whole nation. And this will have dramatic long-term consequences. After we finish reading through First and Second Samuel, if you still haven't gotten enough, you could keep going and read First and Second Kings. And if you do that, you'd see that it doesn't take long at all, just a couple of generations after David, for the whole kingdom to split in two irreparably because of this kind of self-interested thinking at the tribal and personal levels. And notice Saul's language here about vineyards and fields and commanders of hundreds and of thousands. This is almost the exact language Samuel used to warn the people back in chapter 8 when they asked for a king. At that time, Samuel said, and this is in verses 11 to 18 of chapter 8, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. And you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. Of course, the vineyards and fields that Saul is handing out to his staff don't come out of thin air. In order to give favors to his servants, the king needs to take the best of the fields and vineyards that belong to the people of the land. Again, this is pretty normal among the nations, but it's not how things are supposed to be in Israel. In Israel, according to God's holy law, land is supposed to be passed down within family lines so that every family always has enough to live off of. But with the beginning of the monarchy in Israel, these laws will be more and more disregarded. Instead of everyone having enough, as was God's intention, some Israelites are starting to get rich by making other Israelites poor, just like in a normal nation. Now, there's one person in our passage who is from one of these other nations. That's Doeg the Edomite. He's not an Israelite. He's from Edom, the people who live just to the south of Israel. And theirs was a dry and rocky land, useless for farming. But it was strategically important because it lay on one of the main trade routes from Arabia and Egypt in the south up to Syria in the north. So the Edomites survived by taking a cut out of the trade that passed through their land and by raiding their weaker neighbors. The Israelites, of course, are descended from Jacob, and the Edomites are descended from Jacob's older twin brother, Esau. Many of you will remember from Genesis that Esau and Jacob didn't exactly have an easy relationship, and neither did the Edomites get along very well with Israel. Their brotherly connection made it sting even more when time and again Edom hurt Israel. Numbers chapter 20 tells us that after the Lord brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and as they were journeying through the desert to the promised land of Canaan, 
they sent messengers to the Edomites asking for permission to pass through their land along that main highway that was the fastest way through. But Edom refused them, saying, You shall not pass through, lest I come out with the sword against you. Israel asked again, promising to go straight through, mind their own business, and even reimburse the Edomites for any water they drank while on their way. But again, Edom refused, and the Edomite army came out against Israel. So Israel backed off and took the long way around. When the Babylonians conquered Judah, many centuries after the events of 1 Samuel, the Edomites were one of several neighboring nations who joined in the attack, and who, when the Babylonians deported many of the Jews from out of their land, took over the lands and the houses that they had had to leave behind. And when the Romans still later took over the region, they put in charge as client kings over the Jews, the Herod family. You know the Herods from the New Testament, where they're responsible for killing John the Baptist, for killing the Apostle James, brother of John, and for killing all the baby boys in Bethlehem after learning that the true king of the Jews would come from that city. Now, the Herods practiced the Jewish religion, at least when they were in public with their Jewish, Jewish subjects, but they were not Jews by descent, they were Edomites. So throughout the Bible, the Edomites specialize in kicking Israel while it's down. And if you're a foreign conqueror and you want to keep Israel down, you call in the Edomites to help. What a bad sign then to find an Edomite in Saul's service. Saul, who is not a foreign conqueror, but an Israelite himself, is nevertheless ruling his own people the same way a foreign conqueror would. I'm not suggesting he's doing this on purpose. We don't know why he hired Doeg in the first place. But whatever the case, Doeg turns out to be useful to Saul precisely because he will follow orders that no self-respecting Israelite would dare follow. Doeg was willing to rat out David, the beloved hero of the people, Doeg was willing to kill the priests of the Lord God of Israel. And it's that massacre at the center of our passage today, the massacre of the priests and of their whole families, both man and woman, child and infant, ox and donkey and sheep. That's the ultimate evidence of what kind of king Saul has become. If you were with us back in September, then I'm sure you remember what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 15. There Samuel told Saul that the Lord was sending him to strike down Amalek, the Lord's ancient enemy, and to devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And Saul went to war with the Amalekites, but he did not obey God's commands. Not because he was squeamish about killing women and children, he did that part, but because he thought it a waste to kill perfectly good sheep and oxen in that way. Saul was the Lord's anointed, and he was supposed to fight the Lord's enemies according to the Lord's terrifying but holy rules for the glory of the Lord. 
Instead, he waged war the way any other king might have done. He set up a monument to celebrate his own victory over his enemies. He took the animals, the best animals, as spoil for himself and his men, in violation of the command to devote everything to destruction. This kind of war, the war of devoting the enemy to destruction, called Cherem, was not unique in the history of Israel. The Lord had commanded this same kind of war against the inhabitants of Canaan, for example, when he brought the Israelites into that land. So the destruction of the Amalekites was not unique. But on the other hand, Cherem was always unusual. It was always the exception. Most of the war that happens in the Old Testament and most of the war that happens in 1 Samuel is not Cherem. It's not war of devoting the enemy to destruction. The Lord commanded this kind of total destruction in a few particular instances. But in all other instances, he explicitly forbid it. In the very same part of the law, Deuteronomy chapter 20, where the Lord commands Israel to devote the Canaanites to destruction, he also gives Israel other, more general rules for war. And these rules prohibit the killing of women and children, of livestock, and also of fruit trees. So harem is the exception. The general rule is that Israel is prohibited from killing civilians. I'm sure many of us still have questions about this kind of warfare, and so do I. But the point for us this morning is that no Israelite, not even the king, can decide on his own authority to devote his enemies to destruction. Only the Lord has the authority to command Cherem. So now in this passage, we see just how extreme Saul's rejection of the Lord has become. Not only did he disobey the Lord when the Lord commanded the destruction of Amalek, but now he claims for himself the authority that belongs to God alone, the authority to dispense with the limits God has placed on Israelite warfare and to devote his own enemies to total destruction. Saul's massacre of the Lord's priests and their families is a kind of perverse parody of Cherem. The king, who's supposed to be God's servant, instead usurps God's authority and uses it to kill God's true servants, these poor priests. When it came to satisfying God's righteous anger against Amalek, Saul didn't see the point in killing sheep and oxen. But when it comes to satisfying his own wicked anger, he makes sure that the sheep and oxen of Nob die along with their owners. By claiming the authority to devote his own personal enemies to destruction, Saul is in effect setting himself up as a god king. Again, this is nothing out of the ordinary in the context of the ancient Near East. The problem is that it's all too ordinary. Of course, today, there aren't many nations around ruled by kings who claim to be literal gods. But it's still true today, in all of our various forms of modern government, that the highest public authority is some kind of human authority. It might be a human person, like the queen or the president, or a human document, like the constitution or the charter of rights. 
Whatever the case, at the end of the day, the highest authority that the nations can recognize is some kind of human authority. But Israel was supposed to be the one nation on earth that recognized a divine authority higher than any human ruler. That's why originally Israel didn't have a king. That highest role in the land was left empty because it was God's alone to fill. But now Saul, claiming for himself a godlike authority, is trying to push the true God out of that picture. In declaring his own personal holy war against the priests of the Lord, Saul is in effect going to war against God. And the problem with going to war against God, of course, is that you can't win. As we heard last week, the priests at Nob were the last priests in the line of Eli, the priest we met way back at the beginning of 1 Samuel. In chapter 2, because Eli's sons were perverting justice and corrupting the worship of God, the Lord cursed that whole family line, saying, There shall not be an old man in your house forever, meaning that none of them would live to old age. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, had died in one single day, leaving behind only Phinehas' sons, Ichabod and Ahitub, to weep their eyes out. Now Ahitub's son, Ahimelech, and all his family are destroyed, except for one son, Abiathar, who is spared to weep his eyes out in turn. So even in his rebellion against God, Saul is unknowingly carrying out God's judgments. This doesn't mean that God approves of what Saul is doing. He certainly does not. It does mean that even when wicked kings try to defeat the purposes of God, God can use them to bring about his purposes. And our passage shows us in several other ways as well, how even while Saul is claiming for himself a God-like authority, in fact, his power is rather limited. For one thing, everyone else in 1 Samuel can find David, but Saul can't. At the end of last week's passage, just in verse 2 of this same chapter, we heard that hundreds of people were flocking to David as he hid in the cave of Adullam. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And at the end of today's passage, when Abiathar escapes from the massacre, he seems to find David without incident. But Saul's opening rant kicks off when he hears that David and his men have been discovered. Somehow, Saul hears about this, which must mean someone in his circle knows where David is, or at least knows someone who does. But Saul can't get an answer from his servants. After he finishes chewing them out, complaining that nobody discloses anything to him, his servants, apparently, keep quiet. We can picture them standing there, avoiding eye contact. <laughs> it's only Doeg, the Edomite, who breaks the silence. Saul's own people, 
even his own Benjaminite cousins, whom he's been favoring with promotions and vineyards, they won't answer him. And later, when he orders these same guards to massacre the priests, verse 17 tells us, the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Many of you know how big a deal it is for a soldier to refuse the order of an officer. Now Doeg cheerfully fills in for him, for them, and the deed gets done anyway. Maybe the guards could and should have done more to stop Saul, like they did in chapter 14, when the Israelite army prevented Saul from executing his son Jonathan, ransoming Jonathan by their words. Maybe they should have done that. But even as it is, their refusal to obey Saul's order is still significant. It shows us how out of control Saul really is. In that opening scene of our passage, we found Saul sitting with his spear in his hand. It seems like every time we see Saul these days, he has his spear in his hand. In chapter 18, verse 10, while David was playing the lyre in his house, Saul had his spear in his hand. In chapter 19, verse 9, again, Saul sat in his house with his spear in his hand. On both of those occasions, he tried to pin David to the wall with it. Then again in chapter 20, Saul was sitting at dinner, and he must have had his spear in his hand then too, because as soon as Jonathan spoke in David's defense, Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So when did having a spear in his hand become Saul's thing? When we first met Saul, there was no mention of a spear. And during the whole period between his anointing and his rejection, it seems like he didn't carry weapons except in wartime against the Philistines. But suddenly, after his rejection by God, his spear is in his hand almost constantly. Have you ever heard the saying, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail? Without God's spirit, the only solution Saul can think of to any problem is to throw his spear at it. He can't get anyone to tell him where David is or what his son Jonathan is up to. He can't get Ahimelech to turn on David, even by threatening him. And he can't get his guards to follow a simple order. Saul can't make anyone do anything. The only thing he can do is to destroy. He destroys and kills because in his opposition to God, he is too weak to do anything else. Saul's ultimate enemy here, of course, is not Ahimelech the priest, or Jonathan his son, or even David the Lord's anointed. Saul is waging war against God. And he cannot win that war, no matter how many innocents he destroys along the way. As we sang in Luther's great hymn a couple of weeks ago, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. Saul can't defeat God. But because there are dough eggs in the world, people willing to follow any order, no matter how evil, Saul sure can hurt a lot of people trying. In this way, Saul is an image to us of all human opposition to God. Whether it comes from wicked rulers like Herod and Saul, 
or from any other kind of person. If we try to defeat God and his plans, we cannot win, but we'll sure do a lot of damage to ourselves and to others trying. What makes opposition to God so deeply sad is that it is at once profoundly futile and profoundly damaging. So what about David? He barely appears in our passage this morning, just right at the end. But everything that's happening here is because of him, isn't it? Saul's jealous anger is directed at David. It's because he was seen with David that Ahimelech and the priests get in trouble. And finally, they're killed along with their families because instead of turning on David or apologizing for having helped him, Ahimelech defends David before Saul. We've seen already, and we'll continue to see until the end of the book, how King David presents a contrast to King Saul. While Saul is losing the support of his men, David is just starting to collect followers. While Saul is pretending to exercise godlike authority, David is submitting to the authority of the prophet Gad, as we saw last week in verse 5 of this same chapter. And while Saul is throwing his spear at every problem, David, in just a few chapters, will have the chance to pick up that very same spear and will refuse it. It's a little preview. But the focus of our passage today is not on these qualities of David, but on another. What really stands out about David in our passage is that innocent people die because of him. On one level, David is partly to blame for the massacre of the priests at Nob and their families. As Keith pointed out last week, David's visit to Nob was not the right move. He used the priest for his own purposes, lying to him and pretending to be on the king's business so that he could get bread and a sword. Doeg was at Nob that day, and in this morning's passage, we learned that David saw him there. David admits to Abiathar, I knew on that day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. So on one level, the massacre comes about because of David's careless mistakes. But on another level, this is just part of what it means to be the Lord's anointed. Saul hates David, and in turn, anyone who he associates with David, not because of anything David has done wrong, or any mistake David has made, but simply because God is with David. And the same thing is true, even more so, of David's greater descendant, the eternal king, Jesus, the anointed one, and of all of us who follow him. In John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus tells his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Or again in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 10, verses 35 to 39, Jesus tells them, the same disciples, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. 
I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What does Jesus mean by this? Is he about to declare war on his enemies or command the disciples to devote them to destruction? Not quite. Jesus goes on to explain himself this way. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So the sword Jesus has come to bring is the sword of persecution against his own disciples to whom he is speaking. He's not giving them a sword. He's calling them to endure the sword that will be brought down on him and on them. To endure the hatred of their own loved ones. To endure the cross. To lose their lives for his sake. So yes, innocent people suffer hatred and even death because of the anointed one the baby boys of Bethlehem, the apostolic martyrs in Jerusalem and Rome, and all the many Christians who have been killed for their faith throughout the centuries and still today. What David said about Ahimelech, Jesus can say about all these. I have occasioned their deaths. But unlike David, Jesus is not at fault for these deaths. Jesus, of course, is not at fault for anything. It's precisely because he's faultless, sinless, good, and holy, because he brings God's peace, that his coming into the world disturbs the world's peace and causes the world to take up a sword against him. But if Jesus, like David, can say that he has occasioned the deaths of many, then Jesus also can say what David says next. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. It's good news for Abiathar that David will take him into his company. Not, of course, because David's company is safe. It isn't, just the opposite. But because David is the one to whom God has promised victory. Remember, Keith showed us last week how during his period of confused wandering from Nob to Gath and to the cave, David learned that in spite of his sin and in spite of his foolishness, God was providing for him and protecting him. So that by the end of that experience, David could write with confidence the words of Psalm 56, verse 9. This I know, that God is for me. It's because God is for David that Abiathar will be safe with him. Safe not because he will be far from danger, but safe because God will be with him even in the midst of great danger. For us who travel in the company of Jesus, the Anointed One, the danger is greater still because the world hates Jesus even more than Saul hated David. 
but the victory and the safekeeping are greater as well. We have a king who is victorious over evildoers and over sin and over death, and he is able to keep us safe even if we are killed. Jesus, as he says in chapter 6, verse 39, will lose no one whom the Father has given him, but will raise them up on the last day. And in John chapter 10, verse 27 to 29, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. In the meantime, while we wait for Jesus to return and to raise up those whom the Father has given to him, we know that he is very close with us and identifies with us as we suffer for his sake. Remember what happened to that other man named Saul, who was also massacring the Lord's servants. Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is I, Jesus, whom you are persecuting. In Jesus' eyes, the persecution of Christians is an attack on his own body. And God, who vindicated Jesus by raising his dead body back to life, will surely vindicate those suffering Christians whom Jesus incorporates into his mystical body. Saul, Herod, and the kings of the nations cannot save their kingdoms. No matter how much they strive, and no matter how many innocents they kill along the way. But Christ's victory is sure, and his kingdom will have no end. Their opposition to God is destructive and ultimately futile. But in his service to God, Jesus gives life rather than destroying it. They are too weak to do anything but destroy. But he is mighty to save, strong and able to bring about every good thing that he has promised. So here's what Jesus is saying to us today. As we look around at the evil rulers of our world, and as we remember the ways Jesus is calling each of us to suffer for his sake. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Amen.